What is up, good people of Crip Nation? Yeah, good to have you guys back. It's been a while. Finally back in the same room as Pizza Mind. Uh, he is no longer sick. He no longer has food poisoning. I am 100%, and we couldn't be more thrilled. Pete, how are you feeling? My brain is still full of melted cheese, and I, I'm just still recovering a little bit from uh, the awful past couple weeks, but I'm super happy that we're back at full force. And we have Dave Hendricks, the founder and CEO of Vertalo with us today. So Dave is the guy behind the sales guy, behind the devs, behind the curtains, behind the founders, behind the advisors of all these other things and all these little confusing layers. He's the guy that actually makes tokens come to life. So Dave, welcome to Crypto 101. Wow. Thanks a lot, Pizza. Thanks, Bryce. Uh, really great to be here. Uh, excited to you guys today. That was quite the introduction there, Pete. I like that. The man behind the curtain. It's almost like painting the picture of this this cat as the Wizard of Oz or something. The Wizard of Oz is a security token. Well, that's what it says you in know, his LinkedIn. He's the Wizard of Oz, right? <laughs> uh, you know, if there's a if there's a Wizard of Oz at Vertalo, it's probably my uh, co-founder and CTO, Bagster. He uh, not only uh, is he a fantastic dancer, but he's got a PhD. <laughs> He's got a PhD from Berkeley in math, uh, specifically string theory. Um, and so he's not a rocket scientist, but he is a not topologist. It's a, it's a very uh, arcane, arcane he's background. He's not a rocket scientist, just a string theory major. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and so he, he and I together uh, uh, spin the analog assets into digital gold. That's what we do. I like that. And Dave, so so tell us about your background. Catch us up. Uh, what were you yeah. doing before you were tokenizing assets at Vertalo? So my career goes back uh, pretty far, especially with regards to securitization. I started out my career at a little company, little accounting firm called Arthur Anderson. Uh, I, I did that out of college, and I specialized in technology and databases. Arthur Anderson was an accounting firm. So I got involved in a lot of uh, asset securitizations. And this is like back when all the toys were made out of wood in the 1990s. Um, when I left Arthur Anderson, I went to work for a Goldman Sachs, J.E. Robert joint venture. And we helped dig the savings and loan crisis uh, out of the ground and and securitized all of these real estate assets. And I built databases to do that. I then ended up going to Oracle, uh, Oracle Corporation as you know, a database company. And I ran the worldwide relationship between uh, Oracle and Arthur Anderson. It was after that that I met Baxter, my co-founder, and he and I were principals at what became the world's largest email marketing platform, something called Cheatamail. We learned there a lot about building massive scaling systems that could house the data of competitors on the same system, uh, logically separated, providing uh, basically big data and uh, data delivery services to retailers and publishers who were getting into email. And we were really, really early in email, kind of like as early in as email as people who were in Bitcoin in 2011 or 12. And after that, I went on to co-found a company called uh, Live Intent. Uh, that was in 2009. We invented programmatic advertising in email, meaning we place ads in emails that are rendered when you open the email. So, uh, and... It was uh, some stuff that happened in our Series D round of funding in 2015 that uh, provided some of the inspiration for Vertalo. And uh, William uh, and uh, our other co-founder, Gautam Gujral, who's a former SEC attorney and a securities lawyer, and I got together on a boat in 2016 in Berlin, and, uh, and Vertalo was born. Fascinating. I, I kind of picked up on a little something that you mentioned that we haven't really had discussed on the show. So the savings and loans crisis of the eight, late 80s and 90s. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that comes to bear, uh, you know, principally on why crypto exists. 
you know, one of the reasons. So talk about that experience and, and what, you know, for those of those, those of us that haven't heard of the savings loan crisis, maybe uh, define that and then talk about what it was like digging out of that. Yeah. So starting in the eighties and extending into the very early part of the nineties, uh, the savings and loan industry in the United States was, was pretty much deregulated. And a lot of the savings and loans were getting big by uh, enabling uh, unsecured loans to be originated and used to purchase real estate. An unsecured loan is basically, hey, you know me, loan me some money, I'm going to go buy this thing. Well, this happened on a massive scale. It was, it was really something kind of similar to the real estate uh, crisis, you know, uh, you know, mortgage crisis that, that kicked off the 2008 um, uh, recession. And what ended up happening was that when uh, when the recession happened in the in the early '90s, these people couldn't pay for all the real estate that they had bought uh, with these SNL loans, and so the SNL started calling all these loans in, and there was no one to buy the properties. So people just basically either went bankrupt. Or they just, you know, for the, or they just, you know, said, "Oh, I'm going to stop paying this, this, uh, the loan on this property." And so there, there became a, just a deluge of non-performing, underperforming loans on the books of the SNLs, and this had a ripple effect to the economy. And so the the George W. Bush, the original OG Bush uh, president. Um, he uh, he set up something called the Resolution Trust Corporation to clean this up, and uh, basically the process of cleaning up the the SNL crisis was taking these underperforming loans, repackaging them, and then selling them to new investors or to REITs or other other parties that had the cash to buy them. And often these properties were being sold at fire sale prices. And real quick, uh, like an underperforming loan, like is that meaning somebody was loaning out money and then nobody was paying the interest on that loan? So it was just kind yeah. of sitting there? Okay. Yeah, or or so non-perform, a non-performing loan means that no payments are being made. Underperforming would mean either they're paying part of the payment or maybe they're just paying the interest, but they're not paying the principal. And a lot of people oh, would use the, you know, they, they would just, they would just pay the interest on the loan with the hopes of getting um, restructured later or ending up in what's known as a workout. And so what, what we did at the GE Robert and uh, Whitehall securitization project was to build databases of all of these loans and then enable them to be purchased by other investors. Essentially we securitized all of this real estate. Uh, sometimes it got packaged up into multiple properties. Sometimes it was just sold property by property. But I was a database and a network guy. And so back in the days before you had the, the internet the way it is today, before AWS, before all this kind of distributed computing technology, I was creating databases and then connecting them around the country, the US, to different bank centers and building databases of these loans that would then uh, then they would then be um, disposed of, okay, or uh, or sold in some way uh, to new investors. And so I got I got some pretty uh, kind of early hands-on experience in uh, what happens when uh, when things go wrong in financial markets and specifically in real estate and securitization. It was pretty cool. So. But you know these are not these are not financial events that you want to happen very often because um, right now with as much leverage as there is in the system, uh, if this happens again, it's going to really have a pretty strong ripple effect, and that has a lot to do with the fact that you know we've just developed uh, financial products and strategies that are based on borrowing and lending rather than rather than actually valuable underlying assets. It's a big, big argument for crypto, actually. So if you came to me five years ago and I said, hi, Dave, what do you do? And you said, I tokenize assets. I would very, very slowly back away before running for my life. 
And I yes. bet a lot of people listening to this podcast also feel that way right now. Like, what is you're doing what now to who, what, where, why? Yeah. Can you define yeah, so I, what it means to tokenize an asset in crypto? It's it's really it's really pretty simple. Um, tokenizing an asset means taking the ownership interest in a new or existing company, meaning the list of holders of the securities or shares or tokens of that asset, and taking them, you know, say, from a spreadsheet or some kind of uh, paper or other analog ledger and turning them into a pro rata distribution of smart contracts. Basically, it's very similar to taking uh, a, a record like vinyl and then turning it in, into MP3s. You take a whole album, okay, which consists of, you know, 10 songs and you turn it into 10 different uh, uh, different MP4 files and you put them onto a, onto a thumb drive. That's a great so analogy and definitely the, the least threatening way to describe tokenizing yeah. assets. Fantastic. Yeah, we're turning, we're, yeah, we're turning, uh, we're, we're turning, you know, vinyl, vinyl record albums into MP3s basically. Fantastic. So what is the present and future of tokenized assets? Where are we in this process? So the present right now is a lot of stuff is happening under the surface. Uh, there are a lot of builders. It's um it's kind of different than 2017. In 2017, the people building um you know doing tokenizations were using uh, tokenization to create fundraising mechanisms. They were they were uh, raising projects, most of whom didn't have any product at all, and they were selling those tokens. As, uh, as a digital form of a promissory note, you know, they, they, some people called them SAFs, you know, uh, simple agreement for future tokens or whatever. That's what the state of tokenization was in 2017 and early 2018. It was usually a non-equity interest in a decentralized project where uh, you would get uh, a token that you'd buy at the price of an early stage startup company, but within say six to 12 months, you'd be able to sell it in a public market like you could do an IPO. And that's really what ICOs were, were about. Early stage price, late stage or public liquidity. So that's tokenization 2017. 2000, 2019, 2020 tokenization is a totally different thing. First of all, it's not really about raising money. It's really about creating direct ownership. Direct ownership means instead of having a paper share that's being held in custody by a third party, I actually have proven ownership in the form of a smart contract that I can have on a thumb drive or stored somewhere uh, you know, in, a, in a wallet somewhere. And I have permission Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, like, what is the main problem with that indirect ownership model that we currently have? One, it's extremely inefficient to buy and sell private assets. Try buying and selling uh, interest in a private REIT. Try buying and selling uh, shares in a VC-funded startup. Try buying shares of an income stream derived from a debt pool. Almost all of these markets are by appointment. There's no marketplaces for them. And, and in order to buy or sell these assets, it requires a tremendous amount of paper and people in order just to affect a transaction. So, say you want to uh, buy interests in a private company using your IRA. You can use a self-directed IRA, but you need to take, you need to fill out tons of forms. Uh, you need to send them to the custodian that's managing your IRA. They need to review those forms, and then they need to sign off on them, and then they need to go through, go to another part of the office, carry those forms, and say, uh, send this money via wire to this other uh, company. Then that other company has to process more paperwork, and then finally, you own a share. But the difference is that you own that share uh, only in a single-entry ledger that's controlled by either a lawyer or the VP of finance or somebody like that. You took money that you, that you couldn't touch, represented by paper, 
filled out some more paper, used some paper to transfer ownership, and now you own more paper. If you want to go sell those shares in the, in the company that you just bought interest in, you'd have to go through a similar process to ask permission and then fill out a lot of paper. That is the problem. That's very, very, very well explained. And so it kind of sounds to me like asset tokenization is really about you know the peer-to-peer nature of almost like a BitTorrent or something like that, where you could go, you could host a file and you could say, anybody could come and download this file. So in the same way, you didn't need to ask anybody's permission. You didn't need anything, right? There was no middleman. You just go and you host it and then somebody could seed it or whatever. But, you know, in this world of, you know, finance of these new tokenized financial products, it's much in the same way that you can go and you can say, hey, look, on this exchange, on whatever it's zero X or Kyber Network, I've got, you know, 10 shares of this company um, and I'm just going to post it and see who, who wants to pick up on it. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly one of the alpha reasons right there. I, I used the term direct ownership before the, the what token what asset tokenization does is it takes the ownership from third party and it gives it to you. In the contract, in the smart contract, in the token itself, is usually encoded the transfer and trade restrictions. Not Uh, all, but most of them. And so what asset tokenization does is is it allows you to transfer or trade the asset subject to whatever restrictions are inherent with that asset. It could be that you can't buy or sell that asset unless you are um, uh, a non-US citizen in the case of a Reg S. In the case of a Reg D, it might be you have to be an accredited investor to do that, and you have to prove that. In the case of other assets, it might be that, oh, you need to, you, you need to be a, a US accredited investor who um, you know, lives in the state of Texas. There are all kinds of different ways to encode these uh, allowances and restrictions and capabilities into the token. Today, it's it's relatively s- simple, meaning you can't encode all of the rules uh, related to uh, an asset, uh, all the rights, et cetera, in an asset. You can't replicate what's known as a PPM, a private placement memorandum in a token, but you can make it easier to buy and sell uh, and easier to understand, you know, also easier to restrict uh, the sale of assets by using a smart contract. So what are the nuts and bolts that actually go into the tokenizing an asset? Are there a bunch of legal forms and software scripts on your end and registering this with this government body and that with another government body and you just take all the work out of it for your end user? Or what's the actual process? Well, so a lot of that process is already handled when people incorporate their companies or when they've raised money or they're just a company, right? And they just own something. So they've already done that legal stuff, uh, and that's not really our area. What we when, once we know that someone actually owns something and they're going to tokenize interest in it, it's it's really a, a matter of taking the cap table. Now, let me really quickly explain what a cap table is. Any company, any asset, anything which has more than two owners has a cap table. A cap table is a ledger. It's a it's like a spreadsheet of the owners when they bought, how much they paid, uh, how much they own, and under what terms. Uh, and it's a you know it's a it's similar to you know blockchain as a ledger. It just encodes all this information. So a cap table encodes the information about uh, who owns how much and what they paid. Every company has one of these things if it has more than one owner. So the process of tokenization is literally taking that ledger, that spreadsheet, and then running it through a hashing algorithm. What that hashing algorithm does is it takes the, it, it, you start with a base smart contract, okay? This is the smart contract for this asset. And then you run that smart contract through the filter of the ownership proportion, like how, what proportion, who owns how much of the underlying asset. The tokenization splits and creates sub-smart contracts, which from the, from the master smart contract, which represents slices of ownership of that original asset. So there's a master smart contract, and then there are the smart contracts, which are derived from that, 
which represent an ownership in the 100% of the major master subcontract, uh, the smart contract. So all you're doing is really create, you know, all tokens are, 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 uh, you know, are some software code that says, I own this much of this asset, and this asset is represented by a master smart contract. The, the, the process of producing this is relatively prosaic. Um, you know, in Vertalo, we take this, the, the spreadsheet, the, the cap table, we upload it into our system. Someone chooses a chain. You know, our, uh, you know, our preferred chain is Tezos, and we also do Ethereum. It then takes that smart contract and it creates little baby smart contracts from that. And then, you know, uh, Bryce might be 51% and pizza, you're 49%. Well, we create two more smart contracts and they represent 51% ownership and 49% ownership. And then those are transferred to your wallets. Damn you, Bryce. Okay, I know. But he's, you know, look, I mean, you were out for a couple of weeks. So, you know, the board decided to give him a little bit more of the company. I've been stripped of my merit, my shares and my pride. Right. So, but you know what? You can fight back. You know, the other thing is that, you know, Bryce is a good guy. You know, Bryce might decide that, you know, he really wants to have equal ownership with you. So he doesn't have to sell all of that smart contract. He can just sell a percent to you. And he can do that either OTC, hand to hand. Uh, or he can go to an exchange or an ATS and say, hey, Pizza, I want to sell you 1% of the company. I want to sell you a slice, Pizza. And, and then he's going to send you a slice of his ownership. And then he transfers that subject to restrictions to you. And now that gets updated in the cap table that Vertalo manages. Now you both own two 50% slices of the Bryce and Pizza Corporation, okay? That sounds so awesome and so easy. It is, right? And the the thing is that that can take, you know, in our system, you know, we did that on stage. You saw me do it live at Crypto Invest Summit. Thank you, Alon Gorn and Joseph Holm. And thank you, everyone who watched. We did that live. We took a pizza corporation. We actually called it Starfleet. Uh, who do we have? We had James Kirk uh, purchase uh, some shares in Starfleet from Jean-Luc Picard. And they, we did that live on stage because, you know, uh, James T. Kirk wanted to own uh, more of Starfleet. So we did that. Hey, Crypt Nation, real quick interruption from our wonderful sponsors over at eToro. If you guys haven't had a chance to check them out yet, I mean, we talk about them every day. Um, you guys should really go check them out. Just go to crypto101podcast.com slash eToro. And Pete, why don't you tell them about them? What is eToro? That's one of the easiest ways to buy and sell crypto with confidence, first of all. Uh, they've been around since 2007. Uh, all the assets they have on there have been looked at really, really well. It's legal in over 140 countries and trusted by over 10 million users. So if you're not one of them, Why? Yeah, seriously, you got to be asking yourself that question. And, you know, they've been around since 2007. Uh, they started trading crypto assets in 2013. So these cats are the real freaking deal. And my favorite aspect about it is that it's so beginner friendly and it's so expert friendly, but they give you this $100,000 virtual trading simulator so you can practice, you know, executing trades and, you know, technical analysis and all that kind of stuff before you actually put your money where your mouth is. So that's my favorite aspect of the whole thing. My favorite aspect is how easy it is to sign up. I didn't have to wait days for KYC to be approved or anything like that. Literally within two minutes, I was able to use my account. Yeah, it's nuts. Anyhow, guys, as you know, not all platforms are created equal. So go ahead, check it out for yourself. And then uh, hit us with a DM and let us know what you guys think. All right, back to the show. So let's talk about the main person who or the main corporation, I should say, uh, who's going to be using your platform. And, you know, I, when I first spoke with you, I thought you made a very interesting point. You're like, you know, one of the first things you asked me, you're like, Hey, have you ever worked for a startup? And has it been? A hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi video lock, a smart lock, a 2k camera and a doorbell all in one. 
That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy video lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy video lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy video lock. That's E-U-F-Y video lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y video lock. Eufy video lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try nightmare to handle your stock options and your equity and da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I, that, that makes sense. There's quite friction there. So could you talk a little bit about how you guys are targeting um, the startup world and why Vertalo is so needed in that world? Yeah. So um, startups are, are really interesting. Um, they, they start out being worthless. And if they make it through their infancy, uh, the company and the underlying stock becomes valuable. Part of the stock of a company is issued in the form of stock options to employees and uh, founders and advisors. And everyone's familiar with these things. But the problem with stock options is stock options are not necessarily valuable uh, until a company gets some serious traction, usually you know, several years in. And there's not necessarily a market for them. You know, occasionally you'll get companies like Airbnb and Twitter and Uber and Snap and, you know, uh, you know those kinds of companies that are really, really well known. People, people understand those companies and, and, you know, employees at those companies can sell um, their, they can exercise their options and sell them to buyers. But for the most part, there's not really a market in startup shares. There's really two ways that startups uh, you know, achieve uh, liquidity, something, something that people in crypto love. Startups primarily achieve liquidity through M&A or through IPO. In M&A, typically someone comes and buys the company for cash or for stock. And then uh, anyone who owns shares or options gets paid, uh, a, you know, a share based on what the price was. Sometimes, sometimes there are fire sales and no one makes any money. Sometimes they're super successful and everyone makes money, even the last person who was hired at the company. 
that M and A market for startups kind of ends at a hundred or one hundred fifty million. Not too many companies are acquired that are bigger than one hundred fifty million dollars. It just um, there's not that many buyers for for one hundred fifty million dollars startups. The next milestone after one hundred fifty million though is one billion. Most dun, dun, dun. most um, dun dun dun, and the, at one billion. Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or somebody will take you public because there's a, the company is big enough to float. Uh, they there's a, you know the raise is big enough to pay their fees, and you know it's enough to get exciting for the public markets. There's there, there are enough shares to be traded. In between 150 million dollars in market cap and one billion in market cap is something I call the Gulch of Death. <laughs> I like that. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. In the Gulch of Death is a zombie land apocalypse where startups, you know, um, stumble around for years, waiting for a strategic buyer or hoping to get big enough to go public. And many don't, many don't get big enough to go public, and they just kind of languish. And often they end up getting sold for far less than they're worth because there's no other buyer, there's no other exit. Well, there is another way. And the way that uh, Vertalo is interested in, in promoting to help startups and their employees and their founders and their investors get liquidity is through something called direct listings. If you pay attention to this, you might have seen that Slack did a direct listing a couple months yeah, ago. I heard about that, but I actually didn't necessarily dive into it. What does a direct listing mean? And like, there's just no underwriter or how, how's it different? Exactly. There's no investment bank, which is diluting the shares prior to the offering and then selling those shares to the public and taking fees. A direct listing typically takes the, the, uh, the cap table and it lets um, uh, insiders, you know, employees, founders, early investors tender their shares, and then they sell the shares to the market on an ATS or an exchange, similar to the way that people have been recently doing IEOs, okay, or the way that people did ICOs. You know, no ICO was mediated by an investment bank. People just went and they sold them, you know, in pre-sales, which is like early stage investing, uh, main sales, which is like late stage investing. And then, uh, that, you know, ICOs were basically sell, then listing their, their uh, tokens on exchanges where they can be bought by the public. And what direct listings do is it enables venture-funded companies to uh, tender their shares and sell them directly to the public. In a market where there are, very, where there are fewer M&A and fewer IPO options, Vertalo believes that direct listings enabled by Vertalo technology is a real possibility to help unlock liquidity for um, entrepreneurs and their employees. And so that people don't have to hang around at these startups for 10 years, wasting their lives. As someone who's done that and been in that situation himself and who owns interests in multiple private companies, I can tell you that any, any way that can bring more liquidity for employees and entrepreneurs at startup companies sounds like a good thing to me. And, and so what we believe is that digital asset tokenization, the combination of direct ownership and direct listing and connecting to exchanges and ATSs like Open Finance and T0 and the long-term stock exchange and the Singapore exchange, this can provide a really, really interesting opportunity for venture-funded companies and other kinds of companies too, to obtain improved liquidity at, you know, from the benefits of this technology by using digital asset tokenization. So what I'm saying is that digital asset tokenization is not a fundraising mechanism like it was for ICOs, but so-called security tokens. Digital asset tokenization is actually the third way to liquidity as compared to M&A or IPO. And it's a way out of the desert, of the gulch of death for so many companies. That's my dream. That's my vision. 
And we're building a platform that's enabling that. And not going to build a platform. You saw it. You saw it on stage. Have I built. did it. Have built. Continue to build. Are distributing a technology to finally help startup employees and entrepreneurs and asset owners get out of private asset positions by improved liquidity, direct ownership, direct listing, the third way. So you mentioned open finance and T0, for example. These are exchanges that are part of the decentralized finance movement, otherwise known as DeFi, one of my favorite things to say. Will we still need these centralized legacy exchanges and companies to do things for us? Or do you think DeFi will just come in through and wipe them all out? No, to your uh, to your last um, to your last question, DeFi itself can enable the transfer between parties of certain assets. Like DEXs are great, uh, but they can only really trade certain kinds of assets. As long as the rule of law is strong in countries like the United States, Korea, Japan, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, even China. Buying and selling uh, assets without uh, investor protections, without accreditation, without knowledge rights, is going to be limited. So it's not so so much DeFi. I say more direct ownership is going to come to rescue and a more clarity around what can be bought and sold on crypto-friendly centralized exchanges and ultimately down the road decentralized exchanges. So ultimately there's a power that at at play here that decides who can buy what and when and how. And when I ask around and I say who is this power, the answer I get more often than not is the Financial Action Task Force, otherwise known as FATF. Yeah. And this is some international group of people that for whatever reason all the exchanges are listening to whatever their guidelines are. Yeah. They're not backed by an army uh, that I know of. I don't know who their chairman is, yet we seem to live in extreme fear of whatever these guys say has to be done. Can you give us a little bit of insight on what the financial action task force is and why we need to listen to them? Well, the the fat F uh, is the the owner or the or, or the purveyor of the travel rule. Okay, and so the travel rule is a kind of worldwide agreement that firms, the you know, banks, and other fiduciaries must know who their who the owner of an asset is before enabling it to be bought or sold. So because we operate, Vertalo operates within the uh, confines of the regulated markets, we are, we are travel rule compliant. I don't see any time in the near future where traditional assets, which have been registered or even are exempt within countries like the United States, Korea, Japan, UK, et cetera, are going to are going to be exempt from the travel rule. What the travel rule is doing is it, it, it contains capital flight. It's meant to prevent money laundering and financial crimes. The Panama Papers certainly didn't make anyone want to re- relax you know, these, these rules. And so I think we're, you know, to the, for the most part, you know, if you're, if you're trafficking or your, you know, your, your businesses, you know, real world assets, uh, not equivalents, not cryptocurrencies that you're going to have to live with the travel rule for quite some time. And that's that nobody could travel with more than $10,000. Is that right? Internationally? Is that the truth? No, well, it's really that, uh, you know, you, if the transactions are over a certain amount, um, then they are subject to compliance regulations. Okay. It's, it's really, it's, it's really like when you get over a thousand bucks. Okay. But you know, it's not really meant for that. Those, uh, those are small, those are small time transactions. What they're really trying to do is keep there from being these massive 
multi-million dollar uh, transferences of assets to to uh, for tax avoidance. That's really what the travel rule is about. And for me to speak more about the travel rule, other than to say there's that you know if you wanna if you wanna operate in the big markets, and you know Vertalo is is interested in the large asset markets like real estate and venture. You're you're going to have to sign disclosures that everything you do uh, are compliant with that. It's just the it's the lawyers more than the regulators because the lawyers don't want to get sued by their clients for failing to comply with applicable law. So, I don't think that F, the Fat F uh, is is really enforced at the barrel of a gun, but I I think it's it's uh, it's very legally compelling and. It's enforced as much by your um, your own lawyers as it is by any government uh, institution. What a pain in the ass! I really wish that uh, the law and legislation and all that stuff would uh, keep up with the evolution of technology. But I guess you'd have to take a, a much larger macro look at the history of investing to realize why these rules are in place in the first place. I'm just a guy in crypto who wants to make money and retain my anonymity yeah well i mean you know as we all know that even even uh blockchain uh technologies themselves are um not necessarily anonymous it's very anonymity is tough one of the things that we we did to help with anonymity is that whenever we create a new digital asset we create keyless custodial wallets in our system that have never been seen before so um, you can invest in something or have an ownership in something which has been tokenized or digitized in our platform. And you don't have to bring some kind of dog-eared MetaMask wallet that you've been using for all your, all your other deals to store that ownership in. We can create and spawn a new wallet for you and that is keyless. And then if you want to move those, uh, that ownership to some new wallet that you spawn that has no history that no one associates you with, then you can do that in our system as well. That's great. So, you know, to, I mean, for, you know, for, for private assets, you know, the first word in that is private. Okay. Like, you know, you should be able to keep private those things that you own. And we're really, really dedicated to privacy and security specifically We, you know, if you own, interest in a company or something, you don't necessarily want everyone to know that. Not everyone puts all their holdings onto Crunchbase or LinkedIn, you know? So we're, we're you know, we've designed technology around that. It does two things. One, it maintains anonymity, but uh, Vertalo is strongly fixated on knocking down the barriers to tokenization. And the biggest barriers, frankly, are wallets and tokens. Nerds, they're listening here you all know that you guys are way smarter than normals and you can operate all this stuff. You could work at a command line. You know, you know how to run a node. Normal people don't know how to run nodes. They don't know how to use a wallet. You know, they don't know about private keys. That's why Coinbase was so successful. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take a page from that. We're trying to take a page from AOL, which is this internet thing, which is, uh, you know, Everyone jokes about AOL, but AOL was the on-ramp for the internet. It's why the internet got big in the United States. It's because it was super easy to use and no need to use need to learn how to use a modem. You know how to use a modem? You know how to you know get onto a Usenet? No one wants to do that. I remember before AOL, you had to open Internet Explorer or whatever, and then a window would pop up and you'd have to type in a phone number to dial and you'd have to know which, you know, what your ISP was. And it was completely impossible to figure all that stuff out but i could go down to target and pick up a free aol cd and pop it in and i'd be online yeah exactly and that's how come that's how come the internet got big and then once those training wheels were off you know some people stayed with aol because they liked the content but other people figured out other ways to do things they you know they they, you know and then broadband happened etc we're in the we vertalo is in that way, similar to AOL, we're going to help these assets get online. Right now, they're, they're, they're stuck on spreadsheets. We think that 
people are going to be able to participate in a lot more investment activity and a lot more different kinds of things um, if we can help the private asset markets modernize. Uh, so they are easiest, things are easiest as uh, Coinbase or E-Trade to buy crypto denominated or uh, configured assets. And that's what we're doing. That's awesome. So speaking of uh, making things easy, I'd like you to break down a few terms for our listeners. What is the difference between an exchange, a broker-dealer, a clearinghouse, and a custodian? Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, some broker-dealers are ATSs. Okay. Or some, an alternative trading system. An alternative trading system. Okay. So some broker-dealers are ATSs. That means they can trade uh, either um, stock that they helped create or or stock that uh, someone wants to trade, okay, the ATS. Uh, uh, my my co-founder, Gautam, uh, could uh, could help you more with the ATSs, but he wrote the first paper at the SEC on ATSs. Uh, so we know a little bit about ATSs here. Great. Open finance, open finance is an ATS, and and so and they're also a broker dealer. Uh, a custodian is a uh, chartered and licensed holder of funds. There's two kinds. There's state and there's federal custodians. They can hold funds in trust for others. And uh, let's see, what are the other terms you want to uh, do? A clearinghouse. Uh, oh, a clearinghouse is, a, is, clearinghouse is kind of the old-fashioned thing. The, what the clearinghouse does is it uh, settles trades that have been performed between two parties, maybe two broker dealers, or you know uh, any any two parties. Uh, the the blockchain itself uh, is uh, is is a has its own clearing mechanism. So you know when you use blockchain, you actually don't have to have a clearinghouse because uh, the blockchain settles and clears trades by itself. That's what the protocols do. So can an exchange like Open Finance be all four of those things? Uh, not typically, no. Regulators tend to wall off certain uh, capabilities. So the uh, can't be a custodian. Broker dealers can run ATSs. Broker dealers aren't typically custodians. Uh, and settlement is typically uh, done either manually or uh, depending on whether it's public or private through a third party. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for clearing that up. And I think we just have a, a couple more questions or is this our last one here? Yeah. One of the things, you know, one of the things I really like to ask people that come on the show is if this was the first podcast, you know, this Crypto 101, right? So a lot of people, this is the first time they're tuning into a podcast. So what's like a little nugget of wisdom from your vantage point that you could impart onto these good crusaders of Crypt Nation? My nugget of wisdom well, let's say, uh, I would say if you start a company, start it with someone that you love and you trust. I think that's the most important thing. If you all, all out there have a great idea and you want to you wanna make it even greater, don't do, don't do it by yourself. I would say that doing things by yourself for the most part is probably a mistake. So find a great person that you can work with through thick and thin and that uh, you know that can, you, can you can confidently trust and that compliments you. you it sounds guys like have marriage that. advice, Dave. It's absolutely marriage advice. You know, there's, there's, there's two people that when you're starting a company, there are two kinds of people that you get, that you get married to. Uh, one of them is your co-founder and the other one is your investors. So choose your co-founders wisely and definitely have a co-founder. It's very difficult. Even Jeff Bezos had a co-founder. Her name is Mackenzie. Okay. Really? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> Behind the scenes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the other thing is your investors. Choose your investors wisely because you're getting married to them. A bad investor will never make up for the money they put into your, into your company. That's great wisdom. And I, I definitely completely agree 100%. Even if I only have a 49% share so far, I definitely feel like this is a great partnership that I have here with uh, Bryson Pizza Incorporated. Real quick, 
Real quick, back to uh, Mackenzie. So I just Googled her. So that's Mackenzie Bezo. So were they married before Amazon? Or was yeah. it? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she drove the car across country. Uh, they met at the investment bank that uh, that Jeff was working at. And, uh, and then she drove the car while he worked on the business plan and all this other stuff for, for uh, Amazon. And there would have been no, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not the first person to say this. There would have been no Amazon if there was no Mackenzie. And she, you yeah. know, every, everyone needs a partner. You got to choose a great one. You got to, you know, if you're married, choose a great spouse. If you're starting a company, choose a great co-founder. If you're getting investors, choose great investors. And once you start that company, you've got that great co-founder and that, that those great investors, choose great partners. Um, because it's very, very difficult. There's no companies in this space, especially in the digital asset space, that can go it alone. And anyone who tells you that they are an end-to-end solution, run. Run away yeah. from people who say they're end-to-end because that's the end of you. Okay. <laughs> you don't want you don't you don't want to work with people who are end-to-end. You, God, want, specialties. you want pe- you want people who can work with other people. And you're because right. you're gonna encounter that. So I was like just be able to work with other people. It's very, very important. Super important. You know, surround yourself with good people. And, you know, they always say you are a combination of the five people you spend most of your time with. So thanks for reminding us of that and for sharing a, a ton of awesome information about the future of tokenization and assets. And I mean, man, we covered a lot of ground, DeFi and broker dealers and all that kind of stuff. Um, Dave, thank you for joining us. Hopefully you could, uh, you could come back on the pod one of these days. Pizza, Bryce, I love you guys. Um, keep uh, keep doing what you're doing. And um, if anyone here is interested, they can learn more at www.vertalo.com. Great. Thanks so much, Dave. And where can uh, the good people of Crypt Nation reach out to you directly? On Twitter or Telegram? Yeah, I'm on Telegram. I'm on all the grams. So you can find me on Twitter at uh, Dave Hendricks. That's C-A-V-E-H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S. Uh, I'm the number one Dave Hendricks on the internet. So if you just put Dave Hendricks into your handy search bar, you'll find me pretty quickly. And the number one Dave Hendricks in our hearts as well. Thank you so much, Dave, for coming on the show. We'll see you soon. Talk to you all later. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.